In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. It was 1983, and I was in Jerusalem with our two youngest sons. One was 11, and the other was 7. We were walking down the Via della Rosa towards the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And as I mounted those steps, I suddenly realized that the youngest one was not with us. So I turned to Tony, the older brother, and said, Have you seen Stephen? And he said, No. And I realized that I'd lost him as we were walking down. We were in a huge crowd. There were shops all the way along on the street there. And so obviously we couldn't go into the church. We had to go back and find him. And so I walked back and started talking to various shopkeepers, Arab shopkeepers there, if they'd seen a little white kid. And they had. And so they passed me from one shop to another. And eventually they had a little Arab boy who took me all the way. What had happened is we'd turned right and he'd turned left at a particular point and we hadn't realized and so we walked down the street, and there were two police people, a policeman and a policewoman, and they were holding Stephen, this son of mine. And so he was reaching out to me, and I was reaching out to him. And the police said, well, how do we know that you're his father? And I was thinking, well, I didn't have a passport, and I had critical. I didn't know what to do until I said, look at his face. And they looked at his face and he was reaching out to me. And so they handed him over. And the sequel to that was there was a, this Arab boy then wanted a tip, so I gave him a tip. And then he wanted another tip, and so I gave him another tip. And then he asked me for a third tip, and I said, look, this is getting ridiculous. I'm not paying any more. That was 40 years ago, you know, and I have often reflected on that. I would have paid thousands and thousands of dollars if it was necessary to get Stephen back. And I've often wondered, I don't know what the appropriate protocols would have really been. I often wondered whether I did the right thing. Anyway, the issue was we belonged. He, we belonged together. He was reaching for me and I was reaching for him at that moment. The gospel today in Luke's version of the parable of the lost sheep is a profound story about belonging. The parables of Jesus are pretty special. We know they're unique to him. There are no parallels of that type of writing or that type of speaking in contemporary literature of the time, either before or, or immediately before or immediately after. Lots of people told stories, but not the sort of parables the way he did. He often told them quite spontaneously also. It wasn't like he prepared them always. He'd be asked a question and he'd just come out with one of these parables and it was something quite unique to him and often if he wanted to stir the pot a little and raise an issue he'd just spontaneously tell a parable to raise issues so for New Testament scholars they're really interested in this because this the parables the action not so much the commentary around them but the parables themselves are what we know are ipsissima verba of Jesus they're, they're unique to him, and we know they're part of the historical record of what he actually did, 
because there's so much about what people said he did. It's not necessarily what he did. So the parables are not allegories, nor are they simple metaphors. They don't have hidden meanings. They were used to communicate with ordinary agrarian people in the ancient world. But they were also profound enough to intrigue educated people and leaders. These parables of Jesus were passed down in the oral tradition, often through sermons. And the problem with that is that they are interesting nar narratives that got co-opted by preachers to illustrate quite different matters than the ones that Jesus was actually addressing because they're so um, open-ended that they could be used. And so I'll talk a bit more about that later. The parable of the lost sheep is a good case in point. It illustrates well how the Gospels were written. So in the story, there are these religious leaders who are in a colonized, a colonized theocratic state. So they're quite powerful people. And they're irritated because Jesus keeps mixing and engaging with people that they've given up on. The people who were being excluded were, it says, tax collectors and sinners, which is shorthand for the people who served the colonizers and often cheated you when they collected taxes. And the sinners were usually prostitutes who were probably in desperate circumstances needing to survive. They were judged by their society as irresponsible, unethical, and a danger to the good order the religious leaders felt should be the standard in the community. It says Jesus welcomed them and ate with them. And if you eat with someone in the Middle East, that means you're affirming a relationship. This really got up the noses of the scribes and Pharisees, so they grumbled amongst themselves. Clearly, J.C. didn't think this was a time for rational dialogue. <coughs> Everyone was getting a bit toey. <coughs> there were the judges, and there were the judged. And there were Joe and Jenny Blow Average who were fascinated with this rabbi, this teacher, who could take it to the scribes and Pharisees. They were really intrigued to see what would happen. It was sort of a drama that they were interested to see in their village. Well, you probably all know the story. It's an agrarian story. It's the sort of story you would tell in the Wairarapa, Ekatahuna, perhaps, because it's all about the behavior of sheep. They all knew about sheep behavior because most of them had their own sheep. He says, which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the 99 in the wilderness, Eka? the Ekerahuna bush, and go after one that was lost until he finds it? It's a rhetorical question, of course. Everyone knew the answer, and everyone agreed. Sheep were precious. A household may only have one. A farmer had numbers of them. These creatures provided milk and meat and wool, and skin for clothing for the Fano. You would be determined to find the one that was lost. When it was found, he says he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. There's a point here, but we'll come back to it. He's very happy 
and when he arrives home, he gets his mates around to celebrate. I don't know whether they did craft beer or fine wine or a glass of kombucha, probably none of those, but they all celebrated, and it was a big deal. The sheep, which I lost, has been found, he says. Well, that's the parable, and Jesus may well have simply stopped and left people to think. But the gospel stories seldom do that, <coughs> because preachers think that most people need to be told what the parable means, and they go on and add their piece of emphasis. And that's what's happened here in our gospel today. And it's happening with me, because I'm going on having already told the story. Luke and Matthew both tell the story, but their different additions add quite different meanings. They add different meanings to what the parable is about. <coughs> so for Luke, it's about winning people to faith. It says at the end of it, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Whereas for Matthew, it's about not wanting anyone in the congregation to backslide out of faith. At the end of the parable in Matthew, uh, it says, so it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. So what did Jesus actually say? Well, sorry, but the short answer is we don't know. But we do know a lot about Palestine 2,000 years ago. And we do know a lot about Jesus, his life and values. And we do know a lot about the use of language at that time. Here's what I think he was trying to communicate. And I think it's different from what either Luke or Matthew recorded uh, in terms of the essence of the story. You're, of course, entitled to your own view. I'm just giving you mine. He had to communicate easily with agrarian folk. Sheep in Jesus' day were not locked in paddocks. That's why they had shepherds who looked after them. They were usually young boys who would often sleep in the fields with them to protect them. If a young lamb wandered off and became lost, they would often become distressed and lie cast because they were separated from the flock. And when the shepherd found the lamb or sheep, it would often remain cast because it had a psychosomatic reaction to being separated from other sheep. So this is sheep behavior. They, people would have understood this. So the shepherd would put it on his shoulders, because it had been cast, put it on his shoulders and, and, and walk back uh, with the sheep around, the neck, around his neck, walk back to the flock. And you often see in the ancient art, the most ancient Christian art, like in the catacombs, uh, a, a Jesus with, with, with a sheep or a lamb around his neck or sometimes held to his breast while he's holding holding the crook. Once the lost sheep sees the other sheep as the shepherd brings them back, she simply regains capacity and no longer needs to be carried. The thing is, she belongs with the, with the flock. And so when she sees the flock, she just naturally starts moving again. They recognize, recognize each other 
because they belong. Just as I and my young son recognized each other because we belonged. The parable, in my view, is about belonging. The lamb or the sheep became excluded and couldn't function. Once back and included with the flock, all was good. Jesus was usually trying to get across to different people in his audience. To the excluded people, he was saying, you might have wandered off, but you belong. You're part of the show. He always affirmed them and challenged the leaders and the mainstream to include and respect them. To the religious leaders, he is directly embarrassing them for humiliating the excluded people. This is what upset them so much and why they wanted to kill him. He, in the parable, he puts a bit of egg on their face. Leadership, he's basically saying, is about service, and it includes service to everyone. To the rest of the crowd, he was doing the same smart teaching about social inclusion, because they would know what was going on between the power base and the excluded people. He wanted them to engage with all of society. Okay, so what does all this mean for us? Well, at heart, faith is about inclusion. It's about generosity. It's about love. We all have views and preferences. But what I think our Lord tries to say to us is, get over yourself. Share with people who are different from you. And particularly, go to those in need. No one should be excluded. So many of society's problems are about social exclusion. Racism, patriarchy, homophobia are all about excluding people. He wanted people to connect with excluded people. He wanted everyone included. This sort of inclusion is at the heart of spirituality. It's another way of expressing the great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's all your neighbors. As we are all aware, Queen Elizabeth was an incredible example of inclusion on the world stage. The stories and the video clips that are everywhere at the moment speak of a person with great faith who put her own prejudices aside and embraced the UK and the Commonwealth generously in the service of others. In that spirit, I would like to suggest that we all think this week about someone in our extended family or neighborhood who we consider is a very generous and inclusive person. Once we've decided who that person is, why don't we try to understand how they do what they do and endeavor to emulate it in our own lives, learning from them? I think the story of the lost sheep has a twofold significance. Firstly, we are part of the community of God. We all belong, and we can all trust that, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from. We all belong. Secondly, 
Belonging is part of the character of God. And he or she wants us to live out that character in love to one another and in social justice to the world.